A Focus Summary of Part 6, Chapter 8, and the Epilogue When Raskolnikov goes into Sonia's room, it is dark, and he discovers that she and Dunya had been waiting for him together in a terrible anxiety. Dunya had derived great comfort from the fellowship Sonia provided Raskolnikov. She looked at her with a reverence that embarrassed Sonia, who considered herself unworthy of it. Sonia and Dunya had been tortured by dread that Raskolnikov might commit suicide. Sonia knew his pride and his lack of faith, and she wondered if he had only fear of death to keep him alive. When at last she begins to fear that he had gone through with it, he walks into the room. He tells her that he has come for her cross. His strange tone makes her shiver, but she concludes that it is a mask. He talks incoherently. His ideas gallop from one to another. He indicates that he has decided to confess, complains angrily about the brutish faces that will gape at him, insists that he will not go to Porfiry, whom he is sick of, but to the explosive lieutenant instead, and asks for the crosses again. Sonia brings them and puts the wooden cross on his neck. His incoherent stream of thoughts continues as he laughs at the symbolism of taking up the cross, saying, as though I had not suffered much till now, recalls the icons on the old woman's neck, and says he has only come to warn Sonia that he is going to prison as she wished. Sonia begins to cry, and his heart aches as he looks at her. He wonders what he is to her. She tells him to cross himself and say a prayer, which he does, and she takes up the family shawl and puts it over her head. He realizes she means to go with him and orders her in vexation to stay. As he goes down the stairs, doubt surges in his heart, but he suddenly feels that he must not ask himself questions, and he goes on. He racks his brain about why he went to see Sonia, and he decides he is a contemptible wretch who went to her only for something to delay him. He goes out of his way to walk through the haymarket, and looking at the sights, he wonders how they will look to him in a month when he is driven by them in a prison van. Then he mocks his own thoughts as showing off to himself. He gives money to a beggar woman, and finds it curious that she might think him happier than she. He squeezes his way through the disorderly crowd in the haymarket until he comes to the middle of the square. An overwhelming emotion consumes him, and he recalls Sonia's words when she told him to bow down to the people, kiss the earth, and tell the world he is a murderer. A spark kindles in his soul, and he falls to the earth and kisses it in rapture. People watching laugh at him and say he is drunk, and these remarks check the confession that hangs on his lips. He gets up and begins walking toward the police station. On the way, he sees Sonia watching him, and he knows at once that she will follow him to the ends of the earth. Raskolnikov arrives at the fatal place and mounts to the third story, passing the same rubbish and the same stench from open doors along the way. His legs numb, he takes a deep breath, wanting to enter like a man, 
and then wondering what for. He pictures the explosive lieutenant and considers turning back to confess to someone else, like Nicodem Famich, but he forces himself on. Hardly conscious, he opens the door, and none of the few people there acknowledge him. When he asks a clerk if anyone is in, the explosive lieutenant himself cries out that he is at his service. He asks what he has come about, and stumbles over an effort to recall Raskolnikov's name. He apologizes for behaving as he did the last time Raskolnikov was there, saying he didn't realize he was a literary man. Literary men are always original in their conduct, as he and his wife, both art lovers, well know. Allowing Raskolnikov to get in hardly a word, he then says that he has met Raskolnikov's mother and sister, and asks if Raskolnikov has come because he is changing his lodging on their account. Raskolnikov alters course, and says he has come to speak to Zamyatov. Ilya Petrovich tells him that they have lost Zamyatov, who left in a huff the day before. He praises Raskolnikov as some ascetic or hermit, undeterred by failure, and says he is the same way himself. He asks whether Raskolnikov is a nihilist, and Raskolnikov answers, haltingly, that he is not. Ilya Petrovich assures him he can speak openly, as if to a friend. He says that though he is an official, he is also a man of lofty feeling, of humanity, and love for the Almighty. He is sure that Raskolnikov, a man himself ennobled by education, will understand. His words reach Raskolnikov mostly as a stream of empty sounds, and Raskolnikov wonders how it will end. Ilya Petrovich continues, pleased by his own wit, to mock crop-headed wenches who study anatomy, to complain about that scoundrel Zamyatov, and to marvel over the commonness of suicides. Just that morning, he says, a gentleman shot himself. He asks a clerk to remind him of the man's name, and he answers, Svidrigailov. Raskolnikov starts and cries out, and Ilya Petrovich is surprised to learn that he knew Svidrigailov. He tells Raskolnikov that Svidrigailov left behind a notebook, saying that he died in full possession of his faculties, and that no one was to blame. Raskolnikov feels as if something has fallen on him, and is stifling him. He tells Ilya Petrovich he must go. He goes out, reeling with giddiness, and supports himself against the wall as he makes his way down the stairs. As he reaches the yard, he sees Sonia, pale, horror-stricken, and looking at him with agony and despair. He smiles an ugly, meaningless smile, and turns back to the police office. Ilya Petrovich asks whether he forgot something, says he looks ill, and offers him a chair and some water. Raskolnikov refuses the water, and says, softly and brokenly, but distinctly, It was I killed the old pawnbroker woman and her sister Lizaveta with an axe, and robbed them. A year and a half later, Raskolnikov is in a prison in Siberia, where he has been confined for nine months. The trial had been straightforward. He adhered to his statement and explained all the details of the crime. 
The lawyers and judges were struck by the fact that he hid the stolen objects under a stone, and did not use them, or even look inside the purse. This led them to conclude that the crime could only have been committed through temporary insanity, and this was confirmed by witnesses like Zamyatov and Nastasia. But Raskolnikov maintained that he committed the crime as a consequence of his miserable position, his desire to provide for his first steps in life, and his cowardly nature. He was given a merciful sentence because he had not tried to justify himself, because of his poverty-stricken circumstances, because of his abnormal mental condition, and because he had admitted his crime in spite of Nikolai's confession. Porfiry had kept his word that he would insist there were no suspicions against him. Also in his favor were stories of past acts of generosity presented by Razumihin, that he had helped a poor consumptive student, and that he had rescued two little children from a fire. This was investigated and confirmed by witnesses. During the trial, Raskolnikov's mother fell into a nervous illness and suffered a partial derangement of her intellect. She was cared for by Dunya and Razumihin. They made up a story about Raskolnikov's absence, saying it had to do with a business commitment that would bring him money and reputation. Pulcheria Alexandrovna read his article constantly, and expressed assurance that Rodia would one day be a great statesman. But Razumihin and Dunya were struck by the fact that she never asked questions about Raskolnikov, and they began to suspect that she knew there was something terrible in her son's fate, and was afraid to ask. It grew more difficult to lie, and they decided it was better to be silent— but it became more and more evident that she suspected something awful. Weeks of gloomy tears would be succeeded by hysterical animation, and they humored her fantasies about his future, even though she seemed to know they were pretending. When Raskolnikov was sentenced and the time came for them to part, Razumihin insisted that he would save money so that they could emigrate to Siberia and together begin a new life, and they all wept. Raskolnikov was so anxious about his mother that it alarmed Dunya. Sonia used the money left to her by Svidrigailov to follow Raskolnikov to Siberia. Not a word passed between them about it. Dunya and Razumihin were married in a quiet wedding attended by Porfiry and Zosimov. Until they could move to Siberia, they took comfort in knowing that Sonia would be there. Pulcheria Alexandrovna became still more anxious and melancholy. So, to give her pleasure, Razumihin told her the stories of Raskolnikov's heroism. They became an obsession, and she spoke to everyone about them, even seeking out the mother of the two children and going to see her. After nine months passed, she began to prepare for Raskolnikov's promised homecoming. After days spent in these fancies, she fell ill with brain fever, and died within a fortnight. Dunya and Razumihin kept up a regular correspondence with Raskolnikov through Sonia, who included no hopes and feelings of her own, nor tried to divine Raskolnikov's, but instead simply communicated the simple facts of his daily life. She did report that he was constantly sullen, hardly spoke, showed little interest in her visits, 
was disliked by his fellow prisoners, and seemed unaffected even by the news of his mother's death. He took a simple and direct view of his life, accepting his position and expecting nothing better. One day, Raskolnikov fell seriously ill. It was not the hardships of prison that brought on his illness. He liked them. Rather, it was his wounded pride. He was ashamed because he could still see no terrible fault in his past, and he was ashamed at having to humble himself and submit to the idiocy of his sentence. He felt he had nothing to look forward to or strive for, and mere existence was too little for a man who had been willing to give up existence for an idea. He longed for repentance, for the agony that brings thoughts of suicide, but he did not repent of his crime. He couldn't find fault even in the blunders that brought him to prison. He had confessed, not because he recognized his criminality, but because what he had done was a legal crime, and because he had failed at it. He wondered why he had not killed himself. He did not see in this consciousness the promise of resurrection. Looking at his fellow prisoners, he observed that they valued life more in prison than they did when they were free. He saw between him and them an impossible gulf. He was disliked and avoided by everyone, who said mockingly that his crime was not gentleman's work. During Lent, he was attacked by prisoners who wanted to kill him for being an infidel. He did not understand why they were all so fond of Sonia. She did nothing to win their favor, yet by degrees they became closer to her and even began to call her their good little mother. While he was delirious and feverish in the hospital, he dreamed that a plague had struck Europe. Men were infected by microbes that made them believe their decisions, scientific conclusions, and moral convictions infallible. Each thought himself solely in possession of the truth, and men killed each other from spite. Armies were raised, trades were abandoned, and all men were involved in destruction. Only a few men were saved who could renew and purify the earth, but no one had seen them. This dream haunted him miserably. Sonia was able to visit him only once during his illness. One day, when he was almost well, he went to the window and saw her at a distance. Something stabbed him to the heart, and thereafter he expected her uneasily. Soon after, he heard she was ill, but a penciled note from her reassured him it was not serious, and his heart throbbed as he read it. One warm, bright day, Raskolnikov was sent to work on a river bank. From a high bank he looked out across the steppe, bathed in sunshine, and saw nomads' tents. It seemed as if time had stood still, and the age of Abraham and his flocks had not passed. Suddenly, Sonia was beside him, smiling and holding out her hand. Usually he took her hand with repugnance. This time he did not let it go. All at once something seized him, and he flung himself at her feet, wept, and threw his arms around her knees. She understood, and a light of happiness came into her eyes. They stood looking at each other, 
tears in their eyes, faces bright with the dawn of a new future, of resurrection. They were renewed by love. They had seven years to wait, and an infinite happiness before them. That very day, his enemies looked at him differently. All the agonies of the past, even his crime and imprisonment, seemed like an external, strange fact with which he had no concern. But he could not analyze anything consciously. He could only feel. Life had replaced theory. He took the New Testament from under his pillow. He did not open it, but he thought, Can her convictions not be mine now? And there began a new story of renewal, of passing into a new unknown life. That might be the subject of a new story, but our present story is ended.